Well, we're in a series called Summer Songs, and we've been going through one of the Psalms of David so far every different week. This has been a very relevant series for where we're at right now as individuals, as a country, and today is no different. Psalm 22 is where we're going to be, and it begins with one of the most desperate and one of the most heartbreaking lines in all of Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Maybe you've felt that same sentiment before. Maybe those words are very familiar to you. And if they are familiar with you, um, one of the reasons is probably because Jesus Christ on the cross quoted Psalm 22 as some of the very last words that he said before he gave his life for our sins. And as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Such a powerful statement, such, a, such an intense moment in history. If you're like me, you can't help but ask yourself, why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus have to cry out? And the deeper that you dig into that query, the more you can feel the weight of that profound moment. This goes way deeper than a theological pondering, to the point that if this question is not answered in a satisfactory way, it can create a personal problem for us. There's people who don't believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and they, they wrongly and sadly don't believe that he came to this earth to live a sinless life, to be the sacrifice for our sin penalty. And people that don't believe that, that see this quote from Jesus, they will say, look, see, Jesus died a person who was hopeful. He was just this depressed, apocalyptic, and by the end, he had no hope left. And he was crying out to his father, who he thought he had, why had he forsaken him? And they take that and they attack Jesus Christ. And then when we think about it a little bit more, you say, well, wait a minute. There's no one greater than Jesus. No one closer to God the Father than Jesus Christ the Son. So if he was crying out to God in that moment, why are you forsaking me? What does that mean for me? Because I'm not nearly as close to him as I should be. And we need to figure out why and why Jesus cried this out and what we can do with all of this. It's very personal for us. So this morning, as we go through Psalm 22, we are going to get that answer. And Jesus quoted this right before he died. And we have to figure out what we can do with those same feelings that we sometimes have of loneliness, of abandonment. I'm calling this message Forsaken to Finish. It's also called the Psalm of the Innocent Sufferer. And there are 31 verses in Psalm 22. All right, there's 31 verses, and it's divided into two separate sections. There's two totally different sections out of these 31 verses. Um, if you, can, uh, if you can stick with me for a minute here, all the literature people in the room, the people who love books, can you raise your hand? If you, if you would say, I love English, I love literature, yeah, it's about half of us or so. All right, that's not usually me, but when it comes to a psalm, I, I, I like to get into this stuff, all right? And I think you're going to be elated today. I actually looked up words for thrilled in the thesaurus just for you, 
And um, the nerdiest word I could come up with was a tingled. Um, there's kids in the room today, so we're not going to really use that word. Um, but, but we're going to just go with elated. And you're going to be really happy to put your literature hat on. And we're going to dive into the first section and then the second section. And stick with me because I don't want you to you know, freak out over vocab lesson. We are going to geek out a little bit in, into the literature side of it for just a minute. But if you stick with me on this and look at the structure, it really opens up what's going on in this song. All right. So in the first section, there are, it's, it's broken down into six different thought units. And I, I have those up here for you really quick. Uh, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 to 5, 6 to 8, 9 to 11, 12 to 18, 19 through 21. And so out of this, the first, the third, and the fifth units all describe the suffering. They're all suffering. And then the even units, the second, fourth, and sixth, all describe what's going on. You want to put that next slide up there, Jacob? Thank you. Um, we got suffering prayer, suffering prayer, suffering prayer. And as this pattern of pain and suffering alternates with prayers to God, something is happening. And as we go through this, you are going to see what's happening. And I want you to look for it. But the first unit that we have in the first section is verses 1 and 2. It's the verses we've already seen. And it's a cry of dereliction. So this is a call out to God. It's a cry in the darkest hours. And that's the first point today in the first section. Cry out to God in the dark hours, and then we go right into verse 1, which is what David wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a cry from someone who feels abandoned. And, and if you're wondering, wow, David, you used the word dereliction in this, a cry of dereliction. I told you this was for the literature people today. But we know what that means, right? A dereliction of duty, it just means you're not where you're supposed to be. It's basically you've abandoned your post. This is the way the author feels right now. They feel abandoned. And uh, what is disturbing David? What, what's going on? Why is he writing this? And truthfully, we do not know. Um, and that's a little irritating, for me at least. I wish I knew what was going on with David. But we're reading a piece of poetry, and that can be agonizing when we don't have a context for what he's even referring to, why he's saying this. But I want to make two observations right near, right here. First of all, if it was necessary to know for sure we would know, the Bible would tell us what's going on with David. And secondly, we are going to get some context for this later on. So definitely just hang tight and we will, it will all make sense in the end. But we do know that this is very intense. And the question that I have for you, is this a cry of physical pain or of psychological pain? A cry of physical pain or psychological pain? Maybe we don't know for sure. Um, we don't have a lot to go on yet. But if we look at these verses you have with you in your, in your Bible, on the screen, taking notes, whatever you have to do to help you out, when you see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. I would say that at the deepest root here, this sounds like someone who is stressed out at the distance of God. They're not stressed out because they, they don't necessarily know what is happening. They know what is happening. But it feels like a contradiction between what my theology is, what my, my, my experience is with God, and what now I am experiencing. 
God is supposed to be transcendent. He's supposed to be intimate and personal. There's been a covenant made. And God, I gave you my life. And I expect you now to be there for me. I'm ready to live for you in return. I want you to be my provider and my protector. Isn't that the way you understand your relationship with God? That's the way we should understand a relationship with God. And here it is, in his moment of crisis, he's calling out to God, I'm filing my claim, I'm calling it in. I'm ready, I need help. God, where are you? And God appears to be absent in this moment. So what's going on here? The problem isn't really the problem. This has gone from bad to worse because the bigger problem is I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. It's the feeling of abandonment. The door feels slammed shut, and it seems like the deadbolt has just clicked, and God is nowhere. Have you ever felt God's silence like that? The same way? I've felt what what it seems like Time and time and time and time, it goes on and on, and I feel like there's this unanswered prayer, and it seems like ages, but in reality, it was a couple years. It wasn't an age, if, but it felt longer than that. And for those of us in the room who have lost a loved one, and we cry out to God about that, for those of us who want a companion, we want someone to live a life with and, and to have a family with, and, and that's not happening. That's a tough place to be in. Um, there's people here who, who want to be a father and mother, perhaps. And, and that's a huge obstacle that you can't seem to get over. And there's complication after complication. For some of us, it could be an abusive situation. And if you feel like you're stuck in an abusive situation like that, you can talk to someone. You can get out of that. You can run to God. You can run to the right people. Don't be afraid to do that. But you have these questions when you're in these times of where is God? Where is he? The silence is deafening. Why is God forsaking me? And you have to say, is it a God problem? Well, look at verse 3. Let's keep going in this text now. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in your fathers, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So in verses 3 through 5, in this second section, we can see the problem isn't with God. David goes back to the truth. And here's the second thought unit. It's his first memory of the past in verses 3 through 5. No, it's the, problem, the problem isn't, isn't with you, God. You are holy. You don't change. There's no character flaw in you. You are enthroned. And this is a reflection of God's true character. In verse 4, in you our fathers trusted... And you delivered them. So he's preaching to himself. And this is what we have to do as well. We have to do the same thing. The believers of old trusted and you worked it out for them. But again, there's a contradiction here between my faith and what I'm experiencing. And in verse 6, he slips back into this. If it's not you, then maybe it's me. This is the third section. It's the mockery, verses 6 through 8. Let me read those. But I am a worm. And not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. So now he's taking it to a different angle. And he says, uh, you're good, but it's, it's me. 
I'm a worm. I'm a failure. And, and here's the thing. I have seen people go down this road before where this is the posture they take. I needed God to come through for me, but he didn't. So either he doesn't care about me or maybe I'm not worth his time. Either way, I'm out. That's a stance that people can take. But look at this in the second half of verse 6. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. The primary problem for this, for this moment was the silence of God, but the secondary problem is the cruelty of people. People can be cruel. Psalm 22 declares it, and see also the internet. People can be very, very cruel, right? But before we step into the, the fourth unit, in the spirit of, spirit of literature, um, I want to foreshadow something for you. So let me just drop a hint right here in Psalm 22. Do verses 6 through 8 ring any bells to something that happened to Jesus on the cross? Remember, Jesus quoted this, the opening line of this psalm on the cross. That's all I want to give you right now. But look at these insults. Look at the gestures that accompany them. And we will come back to that. But as the author of Psalm 22 is in the midst of the controversy, in verses 9 through 11, he goes back to some more truth. And we have the fourth section. It's the second memory of the past. This is verses 9 through 11. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. He's saying, I'm a nobody, but I'm your nobody. All right? He's going back to God. Just like verses 3 through 5, the fourth stanza is also a prayerful memory. So he's going back and forth. But notice there is a progression here. The sufferer is moving forward. It's just a notch right now in his thinking. In part one, it was God's former faithfulness to his fathers. It was to other people. I remember this is what you did for them. Now he's actually saying in this second recollection, it's God's former faithfulness to himself. So he's personalizing a little bit more. You took me from my mother's womb. From the very beginning, you have been my God. You made me one of your people. So in the midst of doubt and fear, he's holding on to his faith in God. And he's holding on to this truth. You've always been there for me. And please, I beg you, be not far from me right now. And we see in verse 11, for trouble is near and there is none to help. There's more evidence here that this is not about the physical. This is about the relational. And notice he's not crying out right now, solve my problem. He's not making that claim. This is huge. There's huge strides being made here because he's making it personal. He's just saying, don't be far from me. And this is an ancient piece of poetry, but it's, it's telling us how we need to pray in these kind of times. It's giving us a wonderful blueprint of what we need to be doing. The Bible is a three-dimensional book. It just doesn't give you a list of what to do. It's giving us a specific in how. In the midst of the struggle, he's pulling in closer to God right here. We don't do this in any other kind of relationship. We don't look at our banker like this. It would be weird if you talk to your lawyer this way. Don't leave me. Come closer. But we need to do this with our relationship with God, our Father. And we do also talk to our spouse this way. I want to be with you. I want to be close with you. And the Bible is giving us a step. 
and not just on how to live a happy life. It's showing us how to pray. It's not just a formula. Life is hard. We are all going through things that we don't understand. And right now we're seeing an example of a guy who's not giving up. You see that? If he had given up, he wouldn't still be talking and crying out to God. In counseling situations, and you, if you have a husband and wife come in to a, to a counselor, and the husband and wife are yelling at each other, and they're neck and neck, they're going at it, um, that's not usually good, you wouldn't think. But in, to a counselor, they would say, you know what, actually this is a good thing. Like, what? How's, how is yelling at each other a good thing? Well, in a marriage, if they're still going at it, there's, even if it's not the right kind, of, even if it's unhealthy communication, as long as there's communication, one of the parties still cares, okay? And, and it's even worse. It's a much worse situation if they come in and they just don't care. They're both just finished. They're just done, and they don't even want to talk about it. That's, a, that's really bad. But if one of them is still yelling about it, that means they have passion and they still care about it and they want to fix the situation. So a counselor can work with that, right? If it's, if it's hot, you can bend it and mold it. If it's cold and it's ice cold, you hit it and it just shatters, okay? So this is hot right here. There's still a struggle going on, but that's good. There's a relationship that is in the heat of the communication, but it's I'm in you with this. I'm in this with you and this is turning into a cry of hope now. So you have to ask, well, is this a cry for an explanation or is it a cry for action? I would say Psalm 22:11. Look at it again. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. I would say this is definitely a cry out for action. It's not for an explanation. And this is what we do all the time. Um, I do this with my kids all the time, right? It's like, wait, why are you whining? And I'm not looking for an explanation. Like, I know why they're whining. Um, I'm actually looking for an action. I'm looking for them to stop whining, right? I just say it that way. Why are you whining? Please stop whining. That's what I mean. Um, so the innocent sufferer here isn't looking for a philosophical answer. Just wants a change in behavior. Wants a response where the action changes. And if you didn't catch it in verse 1, it's very clear here in verse 11. I'm not looking for a list of reasons why you have forsaken me. I don't want to just, just cognitively go over that in my head. I just want for this situation to change. I want you to be near me. So this isn't a cry from a loss of hope. This is a cry from a place of hope. That's what we have here in this prayer. And again, here's another hint. You're going to need to remember this. I asked the question at the very beginning about why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're getting closer to understanding the context and if you're tracking and making mental notes here, there's something going on with Jesus Christ in this, in this too. But this is how we need to pray. We don't need all the answers in the moment. Sometimes if you get all the answers just dumped on you, that's too much. It will overwhelm you. You just need to seek his presence. And we are being shown how you need to pray. This next section, section five, is a reflection of real life as well. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Um, but let me give you a heads up because you need to really tune in your antennas here because this is about to go to something that we can relate with, a dark situation that's not great that we, yeah, we've all been there. And we're going to get some strangely specific things now in this, in this next unit 
that are, that are so specific, it, it, it's going to get a little dark, um, probably to a place where none of us can really fully relate. So the fifth section is physical suffering. Look at verses 12 through 18. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. I heard somebody say, Jesus, is this ringing some bells? The cat's out of the bag at this point. If you know the story of Jesus Christ and the cross, I've been hinting at this all sermon long up to this point, but this is staring us in the face right here, and I can't hold it back any longer. This whole Psalm 22 is about Jesus. It wasn't just about the one quote that Jesus quoted in verse 1. This entire Psalm, the context is Jesus on the cross. Pierced hands and feet, they're casting lots for the garments, this is something that Jesus didn't just quote line, line 1, verse 1. This entire psalm written by David was prophetic to the point that it doesn't even matter what David was going through anymore. David wrote this. He was the author of this psalm, but I don't think David was experiencing all of this. There's no way he could have. Crucifixion was invented by the Romans like a thousand years after David wrote this. Piercing the hands and the feet. This did not happen to David, okay? This is prophetic pointing to Jesus Christ. When he paid the penalty on the cross for our sins. And Derek Kidner, who, who is a commentator on the Psalms, writes one of the best commentaries. Um, I, I, I used his work as I prepared this. He said, no incident recorded of David can begin to account for this. The language of the Psalm defies a naturalistic explanation. The best account is in the terms used by Peter concerning another psalm of David. Being therefore a prophet, he foresaw, he foresaw and spoke of the cross. Psalm 22 is messianic in every single line, every single word. I hope you see this now. On the cross, Jesus wasn't crying out for an explanation to God. He was in mental agony because he was separated from his father on the cross. And this isn't just about us either. This is Christ's cry of dereliction. This is the prophetic description of the mockery of the crucifixion. I've been making it personal all the way through because we can't get a better example than Jesus Christ on the cross about going through dark times. But hopefully it's clicking with you that the pain and suffering that you are going through, I don't want to minimize it at all, but the pain and suffering that you have actually pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ went through for you. And here's another thing. I'm convinced that Jesus Christ didn't just quote Psalm 22 because he wanted to be with his Father. That was definitely one reason. He was separated from God, the Father, and he had never been separated from him before like that. And the only reason he was separated from God, the Father, was because he took our sin upon himself. He became sin for us. I know it blows our minds to think about this, but, that, but Jesus was with God eternally before time had ever began. Before the world was even created, God was in relation 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus right now is forsaken by God the Father because he loves us. He's feeling that agony. And he says, Father, I know this is what I have to do, but why is it taking so long? That's the question. A second of distance would have been brutal, but this dragged on not just minutes, but it dragged on for hours. In verses 14 through 15, he pour, he's poured out like water. All of his bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. Water has no structure, right? And melted wax is the same thing. If it, it has no form and structure. And this is the way Jesus feels right now on the cross. It's like he's washing away. His strength is dried up. It's like a plant. He's like a plant without water. He's shriveling away. My tongue sticks to my jaws. And then in verse 15, you have this very significant pronoun switch. It's about I, it's my, and now it's you. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is dying for the sins of the world right here in Psalm 22. And what a description this is of what Jesus went through in the cross for us. He had you in mind. We were right there in his mind. And, and God accepted the death of his son because there was no other way to redeem mankind. This was the only way. This is the love of Jesus Christ. And there's another reason that Jesus quoted this as well, Psalm 22. It's because he's a master teacher and he wants to show us something. He could have quoted other verses. He could have, uh, he could have had different words come in his mouth to describe the pain, but on the cross, he points us to Psalm 22 because he's showing us what he went through and he's dropping a clue on how he got through it. This is amazing. We are getting inside the mind of Jesus Christ right here on the cross. Remember how I told you this was personal? It's theologically personal because you're seeing what Jesus went through for you as he paid the price for your sin penalty, but it's also personal in the most practical way possible because it's literally a blueprint. It's a blueprint of what we have to do. Jesus was being crucified for our sins. He was separated from God. He's going through this with this psalm in his mind. He's going back to the truth of who God is in his mind. And I can prove that he was going through this whole psalm in his mind to you in a minute. But before I do that, let's keep reading into the last section, last unit of the first section. This is verses 19 through 20, where we get the sixth peace of crying out to God in the dark hours. And this is verses 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the sixth piece, and it's the turning point. It's the turning point. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the mouths, horns of wild oxen. Don't be far. Deliver my soul. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And you're like, wait, what? He, he just went from like agony for, for 21 verses, and in the middle of verse 21, he turns from crying out, save me, to... You have rescued me. Do you see the flip right there? And you have to be like, wait, when did that happen? When did he get rescued? <laughs> where, where did that come into play? In the, it, it, just in the middle of verse 21? This next section goes from someone being surrounded by dogs and bulls and lions to in the very verse 22, the very next verse, he's being surrounded by brothers. 
And the second half of verse 21, all the way through verse 31, this psalm has a completely different tone. It's literally like going from darkness to light instantaneously. How did Jesus get to that point? Don't you want some of that? I do, for sure. And this is where we have to point out that the intensity and the anguish is decreasing as the confidence in God is getting stronger. In verse 21, he accepts what is already true. Even though he doesn't totally feel it, he's not letting his circumstantial feelings cloud his personal trust that he has in his relationship. He's not letting all the circumstances, everything that he's feeling, he's not letting that dominate. And this is what we have to do. Never let your circumstances control your feelings. Bring your feelings under control by focusing on your creator, your sustainer, and your provider. God is good. God loves you. He knows you. He has a plan for you. And so this is the climax of the, of the first part of Psalm 22. And it's the complete turning point in the whole thing. The suffering Savior finds his communion in God restored because he kept going back to the truth of who God is. He went back to God's faithfulness, and as he continually looked to the truth of God's character, he found relief. That's what we have to do. This change feels abrupt, but really, how could it work any other way? That's the way it's eventually just going to click. You have this battle in your mind. You're going back and forth between how you feel, what's going on. This seems like a disconnect. Where's God? It's, I, I, don't, I don't see him in my situation right now. I remember what he did for others. I remember what he did for me. He's with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust who he is. And that's how it clicks. Steady progress is in the battle in your mind. You don't give in to fear. You don't give in to the doubts. And then eventually that cry of desperation transforms into a cry of triumph. And it just flips just like that, just like verse 21 shows us. Psalm 22, 21 is one of those verses that, uh, I mean, I was even thinking about this, and maybe this is just me as a, like, a theology person, but I'm like, you know, the people who, who broke down the verse distinctions in the Bible, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the verses aren't actually inspired. So we have a piece of poetry here and what lines did David break up? I think David actually kept 22-21 in the same line. So at first I was like, what's, that problem? what's the problem with that person who broke up verse, who kept 20-21 the same? Like, shouldn't they have just made verse 22 a separate verse and made it easier for us to see the transition? But the more I think about it, I think it's beautiful that it is in the same verse. You have this extreme form of desperation, and then you immediately go to the rescue in the same breath. And that's the way it works for us. In a moment, the period of darkness passes, and Jesus, having suffered true alienation from the Father, as, as punishment for our sins, becomes aware of God's presence and his favor once again. This is a verse that we can share with people. This is real life. When we are going through dark times, the darkest of times, you can remember Jesus on the cross right here. Psalm 22, 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And here's the fruit of that. It's point two. It's the second section of Psalm 22. So we had the, the cry out to God in the dark times. That was the entire first section. And now we're going into the second section. It's declare the light to the world. 
Declare the light of the world. And before we read this, I, I think it's going to be more powerful if I first prove to you that De Jesus didn't just quote the first verse of Psalm 22, but that he was quoting this entire psalm on the cross. How can I be so sure? Uh, turn in your Bible to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, we were there last week when we were in Psalm 8, and I just love how the Bible all connects. It's so incredible to see how the Bible all fits together in perfect harmony. But last week, we were in Psalm 8, we were quoting how, uh, how Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8. We saw that last week. Psalm 22 is also right here in Hebrews 2. Look at verse 10, and we're going to read through verse 12. Hebrews, 10, Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Hebrews 2, verse 12, is an exact quote of Psalm 22, verse 22. I will tell of your name to the brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And did you catch that in Hebrews chapter 2, that whole context is about Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 2 says that Jesus said, I will sing of your name. To the brothers. So Hebrews 2 is giving us commentary. It's telling us what's going on in Psalm 22. And Hebrews 2 explicitly says that Jesus said this. So Jesus said Psalm 22, verse 22. We may not have that quoted in the Gospels. Maybe, maybe it wasn't audible enough for John and for those who were standing at the cross to hear it. Maybe it was just going through Jesus' mind. But Jesus was going through the entire Psalm 22 on the cross. That's what Hebrews 2 told us right there. So now that we have that in mind, we realize the Holy Spirit revealed to us that Jesus is going through Psalm 22 as he's on the cross for you. Let's read the rest of this chapter and listen to Jesus celebrate the victory of the cross while he's still on the cross. Isn't this incredible? Are you sticking with me on all of this? This is nuts. Here we go. Psalm 22. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Second half of verse 21, all the way to the end. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. I stand in awe of him, all your suffering of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform because before those who fear him, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And in all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. 
Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That's Jesus Christ on the cross with you in mind. Hebrews, 12, uh, Hebrews 2 tells us how to interpret this. And just like the first section, you can break this section, second section down into three more subunits. Verses 22 through 24 about the offspring of Israel. It's the Jewish people. Verses 25 through 28 refers to the great congregation, this expanding assembly. And you can see that in verse 27, it includes the ends of the earth. So this is the Gentiles who are outside of the fold of Israel on Jesus' mind. And then verses 29 through 31, Jesus has you in his mind specifically when he says the coming generations, the people yet unborn. This is you and I right here. It's all right there. And then look again at verses 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This fits Romans 1.16, where it says that the gospel is the Jew, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's for all of the Gentiles. And it perfectly harmonizes with Acts 1.8, where it unfolds the missionary plan for the church in three stages. You are be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus was despised and he was forsaken, but the cross wasn't the end. The cross is not the end. On the cross, Jesus was thinking of you and I all the way up to his last breath as a sacrificial lamb. And in that last phrase, in verse 31, it says, he has done it. So Jesus is thinking of Psalm 22, verse 31, he has done it. He's thinking about how God will save mankind because he gave his life for the sins of mankind. And Jesus calls out, it is finished. At the same time, he's going through Psalm 22. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. And Jesus is linking his righteousness to a people yet unborn who by faith will repent and believe in him. You can see how he's connecting that last phrase, he has done it, with it is finished. It's what he had done. He gave his life as an atonement by which the righteous demands of God for, the, for sin are fully satisfied in the, in the righteous sacrifice of Jesus. And now the righteousness of God can be freely offered and, and imputed into the lives of all those who by faith put their trust in what Jesus did on the cross. We confess our sins, we repent, and we believe in Jesus and Jesus Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. And that's how it is finished. Because he has done it. So what is left for you and I to do? We're going through Psalm 22. This is deep. This is rich. This is, this is about as intense as it gets. We're looking at the mind of Christ on the cross. Well, first, you need to repent of your sin. If you have never said, I'm not going to live my way, my life anymore. I'm going to now turn to Jesus and give my life to him. I'm going to trust that he died for me, and I'm going to now live the rest of my life for him. You need to do that. 
That's what grace looks like. God gives you a gift that you don't deserve because you by faith turn to him and you receive new life. And it's the restoration of who you were created to be. So repent and believe and start this new life with God. It's that simple yet it's that profound. Worship team, you can come back up right now. There's an old theologian named Arthur W. Pink. I know it's a really, it's a really interesting name. You can't really forget that name, A.W. Pink. Um, he tells a story right here in Psalm 22. I, I love to listen to different people preach from, from whatever passage I'm preaching from. And he tells a story about an old Christian farmer who was concerned for his friend, who happened to be a carpenter. And this was his neighbor. His neighbor didn't know Jesus. And this farmer had been trying to explain the gospel and specifically how the death of Jesus had accomplished everything that was needed for him to be saved. It accomplished every single aspect of it. But the carpenter kept insisting, no, 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 That's, that can't be right. I got to contribute something. I mean, isn't it almost un-American to an extent? Like, I feel like I have to do something. I have to work in some way and contribute something for this to work. No other religion works this way. Um, and the farmer's like, no, no, over and over again. Jesus did it all. And, and, this, and his neighbor just had such a hard time with that. And I would say there's probably people in this room who say, you know what, do I really, is, is that really what it is? Is it really faith? And I'm not contributing anything? I'm a good person. I, I do good things to people all the time. Like, am, is, is sin really that big of a deal to separate me from God for all of eternity? Yes, because God is that holy. He's that righteous. He's that unlike us. And, and sin against a righteous, holy God is a really, really big deal. But people don't want to think they're that bad. And because they've done so many helpful, positive things for people, they just think, look, I'm good enough. It'll be all right. God's going to work it out for me. I'm, I'm contributing something. You know, see, I, I go to church. I'm doing good things. And so many people are in this conversation where it's like, I, I contribute something. This old farmer's like, no, to his neighbor, the carpenter. No, you can't. You can't contribute anything. And so this guy wouldn't get it. And one day the farmer asked his friend, could you build a gate for me? I need, you, I need this gate. And, uh, and, and his neighbor said, sure, they're friends. They talk about Jesus all the time. They don't agree with that, but they're still friends. And so the carpenter makes the gate. Um, he puts it up, the farmer gets it installed, and then a couple days later, he's like, hey, I want you to come by. I, I, I need to do something to the gate. Can you, can you check out something, make sure it's all good? This is a real story, all right? I don't know these people, but this is a real story. Uh, the carpenter shows up at the farmer's house. He looks at the gate that he built, and the farmer, this crazy old guy, takes an ax, and he just starts smashing the gate that his friend had built for him. He's like, well, what are you doing? What's your problem? Why are you, why are you, why are you destroying this piece of work I made? It's fine. He's like, no, I need, I need to make some adjustments. And after a little while, he just destroys the whole thing. And I'm like, okay, what's the deal? You're an idiot. What's your problem? What are you doing? And the crazy old farmer just says, look, when you're trying to do good things to get salvation, you're trying to add to the perfect gate that Jesus opened up for you. Jesus did it all, and there's nothing you can add to it. When you try to do your good works, the Bible says it's like filthy rags, okay? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing we can do to contribute. We've sinned. 
Jesus didn't sin. Jesus was on the cross for your sin. So you can't add anything else to that. The best person in this room has sinned and fallen far, far short of the glory of God. You need to give your life to Jesus by confessing your sin and believing in what he did for you. I want someone to do that today. Jesus is the gate. You can't add any additions to what he did. And Psalm 22 presents two pictures of Jesus. It presents this picture of a champion who fought for us, who tasted death for us. He defeated sin and death for us. And also, it presents a sympathetic Savior who went through enormous suffering for you and I. And Hebrews 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find great hope in the time of need. When you face suffering, Jesus knows the mockery. He knows what that feels like. He knows what it feels like to be bullied, to be abandoned from friends. He's experienced it all, and he didn't have to experience it all, but he did that for you and I. He faced it. He knows exactly what it feels like. So how does that make you feel? It makes me feel loved. It makes me feel accepted. It makes me feel like I have someone who I can go to and I can pray to and I can talk to about this stuff because he has been there. And how does this psalm end? Psalm 22 ends with a proclamation of the light of the world. So we need to get out there and proclaim it. Just like that crazy old farmer who took an ax to a gate, all right? We need to get out there, be creative, be bold about sharing the light of the world. His name is Jesus. He saves you and makes all things new. Talk about what he has done. Celebrate the perfect paradox. God takes the dark moments and he turns them around for good. Trust God. Tell yourself that he's taking me through this pain for a reason. This isn't it. He's going to finish what he starts. He loves me. He's for me. You too are going to see a victory because he takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good. He did it right there in Psalm 22 and he continually does it in our lives every single day. Jesus was forsaken to finish. And he finished it on the cross. That's what he has done. He has done it. Would you stand up? Let's sing to the Lord about that. We're going to have a time of response. But right now, let's just praise Jesus for what he did on the cross. words to him
just prophesy that in here. I'm gonna see your victory.